I want to reflect with you at this start of a week in which we are celebrating together the anniversary of our nation's birthday by inviting you to think with me, if you would, about what unites us as an American people and also about what we can do to work together to form an even more perfect union than the one we have. For some of you, I recognize that when I say these things, your wacko detector immediately goes off. United? Are you kidding me? Are you not paying attention to the world around us, to what's going on out there? How can you even think that there is any sense in which we are a United States anymore? I have noticed that we have some problems. Not perhaps since the Civil War itself have Americans been more bitterly divided one against the other, more separated into poles. I find myself turning on the television these days and greeting a whole new climate than I've ever met before. I've always been interested in politics. I was a political science major. I turn on the TV now, I open the news, I go onto the internet, and the ranting and the raving is so intense, the anger and anxiety so profound. I just want to shut it down and turn it off and walk away. Can any of you relate to that sentiment at all? This is why I think it is so urgent to talk about where we come together as an American people. Whether it's in a marriage or in a workplace or in a community and certainly in a nation, one of the surest ways to make progress in the midst of times of great conflict is to recover a sense of our common values. And there's something about recovering a sense of shared foundations that often gives us the, the fresh footing that we need to hold the kind of conversations that can enable us to find a creative way forward. So I want to give this a try today. I want to see if this might be helpful to you and to others that you may know. As I've shared on one other occasion, one of the most provocative books that I've read in the last years it was a book by an author named Jonathan Haidt that was entitled The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Divide Over Religion and Politics. Professor Haidt contends that underlying many of the debates of our day is the profound passion that people feel for six moral foundations, six great values or virtues that are found the entire world over. In other words, you can go to any culture, in any place, at any time in history, and you will find these six values, these six moral foundations being expressed in some way. This is not just an American thing. This is a human thing. And though Professor Haidt is not a religious man, if ever there was empirical evidence of the character of a creator who is stamped into humanity, the impress of his nature I think we find that in these six values that Haidt and other researchers have uncovered so demonstrably through the years. So today, I, I want to look very briefly with you at these moral foundations. And let me just stress at the start that I do not expect you to remember this. 
I'm going to present to you with a whole lot of information, more detail than you can possibly absorb. I'm not expecting you to take notes on and remember all of this. I just want to make a large impression upon you that you'll take away with you. I want you to walk away with a solid sense that there may just actually be some very good values that are underlying the, the behavior and the positions of some of the people with whom you most bitterly disagree in our time. And I think that if all of us could remember that, that maybe underneath the surface of some of our bad behaving and our ranting and our raving, there are some deeply held and cherished and noble beliefs that are moving us, then maybe the emotional temperature could be lowered. And we could get to the place where we might have the kind of conversations that we would be able to form the sorts of policies that would lead to a better kind of America and world. So let me just hit you then with these six values, if I may. The very first moral intuition that is embedded into human nature is the impulse to care for people in the face of real or potential harm. Whether our passion is to care for the unborn baby or the wounded war vet. Whether our passion is to care for the urban poor or the immigrant child. We all believe in the deepest part of ourselves that we are called to protect the vulnerable and stand up for the true victims. Even if we believe that we need an even more conservative immigration policy, a more well-enforced set of borders than we have right now, if a family shows up at our border or our doorstep, if we see children being separated from their parents or fleeing from starvation or terror, we feel care for them. We as an American people feel compassion for them. We know inside of us that we are supposed to provide help to those who cannot help themselves. We know this to be true. And Jesus himself is, for Christians, the beginning of this sensibility. We know because of Jesus' teaching how much God himself identifies with this care value, particularly when he said, I was hungry and I was thirsty and you gave me something to eat and drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick or in prison, and you visited me. You looked after me. For whatever you do or do not do, for one of the least of these, you do or do not do for me. And so deeply, inside each of us, no matter our political stripe, is this moral intuition that we are meant to care for the vulnerable. This unites us. This is a common foundation. The second moral foundation at play in so many of our disputes today is the value of liberty. It's particularly significant to us, I think, as we think of our nation's independence. There's not an American who at the core does not want to extend freedoms to others who does not want to see basic human rights respected. We believe that all people should be freed from unjust bondage and relieved of undue burdens. It's in our very core as a people. We may differ, of course, on whether forbidding somebody from carrying an AK-47 is a violation of basic rights 
or whether a particular commerce regulation constitutes an undue burden, but we are essentially united in being for liberty and against oppression. In this, we stand with a long line of biblical authorities. We stand with the likes of Moses and the psalmist and the prophets and certainly Jesus who said that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He had come for this purpose to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and release to the oppressed. The moral foundation of fairness matters to us all too. Some of us are are worked up these days over all of the unfairness going on out there. Some of us are are incensed by the thought of all of the takers sucking the life out of all of the makers, killing the cow that provides the milk, is our perspective. Others of us are outraged at the thought of all of the so-called makers who are in fact takers, who are living the high life, who hide their profits, who, who let the little person in their organizations work hard all day long with never enough to really take care of their family. And this feels unfair. And so wherever we are on that continuum, it's this sense that, that some people out there are cheating that gets us so worked up. We'd like to stop free-riding and abuse by the lazy or by the powerful. And we think that everybody ought to have fair opportunity and fair reward from the labor. Is that not so? Is that not core to all of us? The Bible agrees with us in this value, too. The Scriptures say that if a king judges the poor with fairness, in other words, takes care of the poor with fairness, his throne will always be secure. The Lord secures justice for the poor, says the psalmist. He upholds the cause of the needy. He wants to see them treated fairly. But, we're told in the New Testament, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. A man shall reap what he sows. The worker deserves his wages. And somewhere in this balance of of understandings about the nature of fairness lies something of God's justice, and this is something we need to keep struggling to find. The fourth of the six moral foundations found the world over is loyalty. As somebody has observed, human beings are by nature groupish creatures. We find identity and security and belonging to one tribe or or another. We rise to defend our tribe against threats and competitors. I know this because we have on our staff our human resources director who is a Green Bay Packers fan and his life is in danger every week when he comes to work here. (laughs) It truly is, Larry. (laughs) Remember that. We'll be loyal to our clique. We'll be loyal to our family, to our party, to our sorority, to our platoon, even when it is against our immediate self-interest. It has been said that even now and then, someone will lay down his life for his friends. Those on the right and the left today are fighting over which group deserves our greatest loyalty. Should our focus be on the welfare of this nation? Or should it be on the wider community of humankind? Should we focus on creating jobs here 
or on the development of a global economy with the power to lift even more people up? Is the arrival of new people in our country a threat to our tribe, those of us who are already here, or is it actually a blessing that will make America even greater and more competitive in the years to come? It's hard to see straight on these things, to balance all the considerations. And sometimes the ties of loyalty that bind us together also blind us together. And our groupishness brings out sometimes our most selfish and violent and insensitive tribal side. But this capacity for commitment to others to, to care deeply for a circle of other people is one of the most beautiful things about us. Proverbs says, don't let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. The scriptures say in the New Testament, though there are many of us, we must remember we are one body in Christ and individually we belong to each other. So let's work for the good of all, says St. Paul and especially for those in the household of faith. Let's work for the good of all, and especially those with whom we are united in faith. Alongside of these other moral foundations also lies the value of authority. Authority. I think it's fair to say that this particular value is eroding in our time. It's eroding as we become more and more people who see life through the lens of our autonomy. As America becomes perhaps the most radically individualist nation on the earth, even the sense of the, of the importance of authority begins to be compromised. It erodes even further, I think, each time we see authority abused. And we have seen authority abused many times over the course of our lifetime. But deep within us, I think also lies this respect nonetheless for the role that laws and hierarchies play in ordering society and cultivating virtue and protecting the weak and the circumstances where people can be free to exercise the other values. I, for one, don't personally know where I'd be without the elders and the mentors in my life, those authorities who push me to do things I didn't want to do who pushed me to study, to get summer jobs, to do chores around the house. I, I would never have gone very far without those authorities in my life. I'm thankful for the police that arrested me from time to time when I was young. <laughs> I know not everybody can say that. Not everybody has the same experience sometimes with the law. But in my individual circumstance, it was a critical part of, of reframing my journey of restraining my selfishness when that was needed. It is clear from the scriptures that God intended authority to be largely a blessing. Honor your father and mother, God enjoins us. Why? So that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Or, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for these authorities that exist have been established by God. I know that last verse has been much debated in recent days. And it let me be very, very clear that when authority is abused, it ought to be opposed. Moral people must challenge government when they earnestly believe that it is acting immorally. That's the nature of our republic. 
We should fight to repeal or reform unjust laws or make better laws. But a nation without a respect for authority, without a rule of law, will quickly devolve into chaos. We wouldn't even want to try that at home, would we? The final moral foundation I want to touch on today is the value of purity or sanctity. Simply put, purity is the moral intuition that some things are holy or sacred and should therefore be protected against degradation. In God's word we read, and I quote, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Do do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Among you, says Paul, there must not even be a hint of immorality, impurity, or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And Paul says, keep yourself. Take pains to keep yourself pure. The Bible supplies a list of, of sacred things that we are meant to preserve and protect. Human life is sacred. Sabbath time is holy. The covenant of marriage, the innocence of children, the creation that God has given us to steward, these things are sacred. I recognize that in our time there's much discussion about whether that circle of the sacred should be widened to include things like the national anthem or only certain kinds of music or diverse forms of marriage. And because people have such strong, strong feelings of protectiveness or repugnance around purity and sanctity issues or because maybe their sense of care and liberty and fairness affects how they look at these particular subjects, conversations about uh, sanctity issues or purity issues are intense and particularly difficult and often divisive. Now, as I said at the start, I I, I don't expect you to remember everything I've just told you. I can't even remember it. That's why I had to write it down. Uh, I don't want you to try and hold all of this in your head. But I have laid all of this out to support this major headline that I really do hope you're going to take with you from this place today. Remember that much of the conflict that we see in America today is a struggle over how and where to express highly positive values. Please remember this. There's a struggle going on over moral foundations that the Bible teaches are highly important to God and to the well-being of his creation and his creatures. Research indicates, interestingly enough, that political or social progressives tend to particularly cherish the three values you see there on the left, the values of care, liberty, and fairness. And and political and social progressives tend to see many other issues primarily in light of those first three values. Political and social conservatives have a tendency to also esteem those first three values, but they often look at issues through the lens of the rightward values of loyalty, authority, and purity. And especially if they feel like nobody on the left is concerned about those uh, those right side values, they're going to tend to be very uh, hard at championing those as a balancing influence in society. And libertarians, well, they find their way somewhere down the middle, uh, picking in from that buffet of, of moral foundations. 
I tell you all of this in the hope that you and I, as followers of Jesus, can help to lower the culture of outrage that is dominating our society today. Let me say that one more time. I believe it is the call of God upon the Christian people of America to help lower the culture of outrage that has overtaken our society today. Certain elements in the news media or the blogosphere or the political world will tell you that all the people who think uh, from the side of the chart that you don't typically think from or champion a value that isn't a particularly prized one uh, for you are, are stupid people or evil people or maybe both, stupid and evil. Maybe some of them are. Certainly not most. Keep in mind that many of the people who have the microphones in our time, who are calling us to look at things in this particular way, uh, are, are people who depend for their livelihood on keeping you whipped up with anger and anxiety and tuned into them. In other words, they've got a lot of competition out there for an increasingly smaller and smaller market share, it is highly in their interest to keep you as worked up and angry as they possibly can so you stay on their station or come back to their uh, web position so they just get louder and louder and shriller and shriller, and that's not your imagination. It's an economic issue for so many of them. Please be suspicious of this. Do not listen to these people who are constantly saying, you can't be awoke enough to the horror of what those people are doing. Don't, don't let that become your spirit. It's not the spirit of God to, to be like this. Turn off the TV. Leave Reddit behind. Read some books. Talk personally, face-to-face, -face with some folks who who may look at things differently. Ask what values seem especially important to them and why and how they came to that conviction and where that got rooted in their life story and then share your values and your sense of what's important that we not lose now in our time. Help to lower the culture of outrage. Finally, embrace the genius of the and, if you would. Embrace the genius of the and. Business writer Jim Collins popularized that phrase after discovering that one of the secrets to the highest performing uh, companies and organizations that he and his other Stanford researchers were looking at, one of the absolute secrets to companies that had not only performed, outperformed the market dramatically, but had endured for an average of 100 years was their unwillingness to accept a simple either-or approach to moving forward. Let me just tell you what I mean by that. These visionary companies, writes Collins, reject having to make a choice between stability or progress, between cult-like cultures or individual autonomy, between conservative practices or big, hairy, audacious goals. Instead, writes Collins, these companies embrace the paradoxical view that allows them to pursue both A and B at the same time. And the fusion of these values from different ends of the spectrum 
creates a generativity and a creativity in these organizations that is partly what is uh, the reason for why these companies outperformed even their nearest competitors by 15 times. There was a genius to this and thinking these organizations demonstrate. I bring that up because it strikes me that the early church noticed this quality about Jesus. A lot of the religious people of Christ's day were either or people. They figured that you had to be a righteous person or you could be a friend of sinners. You certainly couldn't be both. You had to value God's Sabbath law and be serious about it or you were willing to help somebody on a Saturday, but certainly not both. You worshiped God on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as the Jews did, or over there on Mount Gerizim as the Samaritans did, but certainly not both. People in the first century had settled into camps and parties, each majoring on particular values to the exclusion of other values and sticking to your value set, holding fast to that, championing that and that of your people gave you security, it gave you certainty, it gave you an ability to know was who was in, who was out, who was good, who was bad. This was the way in Jesus' time. And then came Jesus. And then came the Son of God into the world, the Word made flesh. Here's a guy who can't seem, from a human perspective, to make up his mind about values. I mean, this is what was so disturbing about him from the vantage point of some of the religious people of his day. I mean, one moment he's teaching against sin, and he eats with sinners. He proclaims himself the most high God, and he stoops to wash the stinking feet of fishermen. He loves the law of God. He says, I won't change a jot or a tittle of it. And, and he stoops to take the liberty to heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus prizes rest and work. He exercises amazing mercy and firm judgment. He extends blessings and sets boundaries. Jesus demonstrates freedom and discipline, vulnerability and strength, tolerance and confrontation, self-denial and self-assertion. Watching Jesus live his life was like watching a great speed skater or a cyclist moving down the course. You see the powerful muscles of his character driving down on one value, then shifting to the other side. And it's this continual uh, dynamic movement of Jesus' life, this almost uh, embrace of this paradoxical tension of energies that gives to Christ's life its extraordinary balance, its amazing progression and force. And his most beloved disciple was watching all of this, and he summed it up for all of the other disciples in these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talk about a contradiction, an and, the divine word and flesh. And we beheld his glory, full 
of grace and truth. No wonder we have problems, even as Christians, agreeing on something as comparatively simple as immigration policy or many of the other complex issues of our day. It would be a lot easier to follow an either-or ethic on these things, an either-or kind of God. It would be a, a huge relief to a lot of us if we could simply choose between uh, compassion for the stranger and mercy for, for, for women and children and shelter for the exile, which are all clearly biblical values. They are, all through the Scriptures. Or if we could isolate instead on the value of, of restoring gates and walls and respecting the rule of law and taking care of our own uh, established communities, which are also recurring themes in the Scriptures. It is so much more demanding to follow the God of the glorious and. It is so much more demanding to try and chart out a personal position or a public policy that is full of grace and truth working together. But if we are going to truly follow Jesus, and not just the, the Jesus of our party and our pundits and our preference, but the Jesus we meet in the Holy Scriptures, if we're going to really follow that kind of Jesus, then we are bound to pursue the genius of the and more than we are. Some years ago, I told the story of a, of a lunchtime encounter that I'd had um, one day when I lived in San Diego. And with, this, with this story, I want to close. Uh, I was passing my way through a restaurant, and I noticed sitting at a table a, uh, a very uh, patrician-looking gentleman uh, who I recognized as uh, United States Senator Lloyd Benson, the esteemed Democratic senator from the great state of Texas and the uh, Treasury Secretary of the United States at one point. Um, and seeing him sitting there and having a few moments before I needed to join my party, I stopped at the table and I, and I said hello. And I introduced myself. And, and I could see on the senator's face that, that, that look of, of cordial anxiety that public people get when you interrupt them in one of their rare private moments. He did not want to talk to me. And I didn't blame him. So I hastened quickly, and I said, uh, Senator Benson, forgive me, but I just wonder if you might have remembered my great-uncle Peter Dominic. And my uncle Peter Dominic was a Republican senator, actually the head of the Republican um, uh, Senate campaign committee uh, and a three-term senator from the great state of Colorado, the other side of the aisle. Upon the mention of Peter's name, Senator Benson's face immediately changed. And, 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 and relaxed, and he, a smile spread across his face, and he said, well, sit down. You're Peter Dominic's nephew. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, oh, Peter and I were tremendous friends. In fact, my wife still keeps in touch with your Aunt Nancy. We would bang heads all the time on the floor of that Senate. We had some tussles, working stuff out. But, you know, we would go out afterwards. We would sit down. We'd have a beverage. We'd talk about our kids. We'd figure out what we still shared in common. And we'd brainstorm ways of working together to advance the welfare of this great nation. 
And then this look of wistfulness came across his face. And he said, that's not happening so much anymore. Times are changing. That conversation was 25 years ago. And they've kept changing. Those times have kept changing. And, and I think we are now living in this culture of outrage that cannot move forward, that is really hurting us as a nation, putting a lie to our, turn, our, our, our name, these United States. But you and I remain servants of the Lord who is full of grace and truth. So let's reflect this in the way that we speak with and listen to and interact with and advocate for policies that honor more than just one or two or one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum of these moral foundations because in this way, if we can bring stuff together in this way, you and I can help to make America glorious again. And I hope we'll answer that call. Please pray with me. And now, gracious God, God of truth, God of all wisdom and glory, fall afresh upon us, we pray, upon your church, upon we who are called by your name. And work through us, we pray, Lord God, that we may be a force of blessing in this nation that we love. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.